Welcome to this uh, holiday edition of uh, the Dr. Joe Show. And uh, I think we're going to have a good time today because I've got uh, lots of interesting questions to ask you and I think a few interesting topics to tell you about as well. Uh, for those of you who've not been following me for the last few decades, of which now there are more than four, uh, I'm uh, Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, my background in chemistry. And as I always tell you, I think chemistry is the science that ties all the others together. Because if you have a good feel for what molecules are all about and the reactions in which they can engage, you have a good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. Well, let's start out today. I'm going to give you a number of questions so that you can start searching for answers. And each of these, of course, does have an interesting answer that can launch us in various directions in terms of discussion. Now, there's one that I still have left over, I, I think, from two weeks. Uh, no one has been able to answer this, although I would think that it is not all that difficult. If you add a little household ammonia to red cabbage juice, it turns green. What happens if you then blow into this solution through a straw? So everyone knows that that you know red cabbage juice is interesting because of the color changes it can undergo. And you add ammonia, it turns green. But what happens if you take a straw, and straws are still available, and you blow through this straw into the solution? Okay, that's the first question. Next question. What creature imported into Australia from Hawaii in 1930s to control pests became a huge pest itself? That's our question number two. All right, now we'll go to another question. I want to start off with three questions for you guys today. Daniel Boone was a legendary American frontiersman who led the way to settle Kentucky. Although he is known mostly as a fur trader, he actually made his fortune trading a botanical product. What was that? If you know the answer to any of those questions, 514-790-0800. is also the number where you can text your questions and potential answers. Uh, to get going today, I want to, uh, to address a very interesting uh, topic, I think, uh, about a rule or a new piece of legislation that is coming into effect in uh, France uh, just next week in, in Janu on January 1st, and uh, followed quickly also in Spain. So I want to give you a little bit of background here. Now, let me start out by telling you that, you know, over the four decades that I've been uh, doing this show and basically trying to separate sense from nonsense for, for the public, uh, those years have been a very educational experience. I've learned a great deal, uh, but maybe the lesson at the top of that pile is that once you start scratching the surface of an issue, it invariably gets more complicated than it first seems. Uh, issues are almost never black or white. They are various shades of gray. And that's the case, whether you know we're talking about electric vehicles, food additives, aspects of nutrition, cholesterol, medications, vaccination, climate change, insecticides, herbicides, 
personal care products, dietary supplements, space exploration, good old history, or plastics. Always shades of gray, all those plastics. They become villains, right, in people's minds. They're targets of emotional attacks by various bloggers who want plastics banned. Let's get the nonsense out of the way right off the bat. If you're going to ban plastics, you can forget about airplanes, cars, computers, cell phones, and you might as well close down hospitals. Obviously, banning plastics is, is just an absurd idea. However, given the deluge of plastic garbage, the frightening notion of microplastics building up in the oceans, and possibly in our bodies as well, we have to engage in a proper risk-benefit analysis of specific applications of plastics. It is unreasonable to question the use of plastics in a heart-lung machine or in a surgical mask. But an English cucumber shrink-wrapped in plastics is a different story. Ah, or is it? Well, the French government thinks it is. And from January 1st, cucumbers wrapped in plastic will not be allowed to be sold in French stores. The plastic ban applies not only to cucumbers, but to other fruits and vegetables as well, with some exceptions like cut fruit, some delicate produce like peaches, berries, cherry tomatoes will still be allowed to be sold in, in plastic for now. By the end of 2023, however, plastic packaging will also be banned for cherry tomatoes, green beans, peaches. And then by 2024, will also be banned for asparagus, mushrooms, cherries, and some salads. And then by 2026, all berries will have to be sold without plastic packaging. Well, it sounds like a great idea. And mostly it is, but not in every case, such as English cucumbers that are shrink-wrapped, in which case the benefits likely outweigh the risks. Okay, first, let's take a look at the, the science of shrink wrapping. What is this? It's a technology introduced in the 1960s, and there are several different materials that can be used. Common feature is that they're all polymers. Oh, they can be polyvinyl chloride, PVC, polypropylene, polyethylene. All of these can be shrunk, but polyethylene is the most widely used. Uh, now, in order to understand what is going on here, you have to understand that a polymer is a long change of, of, of uh, units called monomers. And you can think of it as a long string. But the way that it would uh, actually be manifested inside a thin film of plastic is that these long strings are coiled up into a little ball. And there are many of these balls packed together to make up the material. If you stretch this film, you uncoil the molecules. So they line up in a linear fashion. But that's not the way that nature uh, intends uh, large molecules to, to behave. Uh, nature uh, likes randomness. So these molecules would much rather be coiled up than be drawn out into straight chains. So anyway, if you take a plastic film and you stretch it, the molecules line up. And then if you wrap this plastic around something and you heat it, then you impart enough energy to... Uh, break the bonds that are holding these molecules together in, in uh, adjacent chains, and they will again coil up, and that will shrink the plastic around whatever object. 
And the macroscopic effect here is that the film shrinks to fit snugly around any object, whether it's a tomato, jar of tomato sauce, a cucumber, or indeed a large object like a helicopter that can be transported then on ships. So why would a cucumber be shrink-wrapped? You know, no producer has ever said, gee, we're not spending enough money on our product, so let's increase our expenses by wrapping our product in some useless, environmentally unfriendly plastic. The fact is that shrink-wrapped cucumbers have an extended shelf life of about 60%. There are several reasons for this. The wrap dramatically reduces moisture loss and prevents shriveling. That, of course, is a good thing. People do not want to buy shriveled uh, cucumbers. It also reduces contact with oxygen in the air. And that's a good thing, too, because vegetables and fruits continue to respire. That is, they pick up oxygen from the air, they react it with their carbohydrates, and they release carbon dioxide and, and oxygen. And that leads to a change in texture. But oxidation is also responsible for other chemical changes that can affect nutrition. For example, shrink-wrap uh, shrink broccoli loses far less of the glucosinolates. Those are the compounds thought to be responsible for the benefits of broccoli in terms of health. And uh, when you shrink-wrap it, far less losses of this than with loose broccoli. Now, you know that produce that is damaged by moisture uh, loss or due to oxidation ends up being discarded. Researchers estimate that about a third of all the food that is produced is wasted. And that has a huge environmental footprint because of, you know, you need to produce agrochemicals to grow the food. Those chemicals have to be transported. Then the food has to be transported. Um, of course, plastic production also has an environmental impact. But it turns out that at least for cucumbers, the plastic wrap is responsible only for about 1% of the environmental impact of the cucumber. A cucumber that is discarded because of spoilage has the environmental impact of 93 plastic wraps. And recently, a cradle-to-grave analysis in Switzerland by scientists concluded that unwrapped cucumbers have a five times greater negative impact on the environment than shrink-wrapped ones. Furthermore, the polyethylene that is used in shrink wraps can be recycled. And it can also be made from ethylene that's derived from ethanol, which is produced from sugarcane. And this has less environmental impact because sugar, of course, when it's growing, absorbs carbon dioxide from the air. There's also compostable plastic, polylactic acid, that can be derived from corn. And this can also be used for uh, shrink wraps, although it is more expensive. All of this is to suggest that blanket bans on plastic packaging are unrealistic and decisions have to be made on specific applications, taking into account possible contamination from handling, nutritional losses, and of course, the environmental impact. A, a, a quarter wedge of watermelon definitely needs to be wrapped, but we can do without shrink wrapping a six pack of bottled water. Actually, you know what? We can even do without the bottled water. Okay, I'm repeating uh, the questions. 
because I don't yet have a, a, a response. Uh, one of the questions was, if you add a little household ammonia to red cabbage juice, it turns green. What happens if you then blow into the solution through a straw? If you don't know the answer, ask your children. If they are in high school, they should know that answer. What creature imported into Australia from Hawaii in the 1930s to control pests became a huge pest itself? And Daniel Boone was a legendary American frontiersman who led the way to settle Kentucky. And although he's known as a fur trader, he made his fortune trading a botanical product. What was that? And I'm going to now add one more question. Why was Elena Ceausescu, wife of uh, Nicolae Ceausescu, former premier of Romania, why was she nicknamed Kodoi, C-O-D-O-I, C-O-D-O-I? Maybe it should be pronounced Chodoi in Romanian, I'm not sure, C-O-D-O-I. Okay. Uh, I think maybe Milad has an answer. Milad. In the cabbage juice. Sorry? Hello? Yes, go ahead. Uh, we have we have a scenario here of acid base. Uh, if CO2, when I blow it in the liquid, it's going to react with the water and uh, turn into carbonic acid, and that will yes. change the color from green to, I would guess, you know, pink or orange. No, no. I said if you add a little household ammonia to red cabbage juice, it turns green. Right. Now you're going to blow into it. Yeah. What will the color be? Well, uh, I mean, there is no... uh, I believe there will be an acid formation first. Yes, yes. There's acid Uh, formation because the cabbage juice is acting as an You know, believe me, I, I tried it at home a long time ago. Yeah. I just yeah. don't remember the color, how it turned. Yeah, well, it will turn back to a purplish-pinkish color, oh, like the purplish. color that the red cabbage juice originally was. But okay, this am is I a half classic. true, half, half right? <laughs> it's a classic uh, you know, high school experiment. And, it's, of course, it's a very good experiment because right. it demonstrates that you're exhaling carbon dioxide. Okay. And, I, I have an answer uh, for, you the, have... For, another, yeah. for the okay. other question about uh, the... Uh, uh, the pest. Yes, it's it, you know uh, they imported a frog to control the beetle that was devastating the sugarcane industry in, in yes. Australia. Not quite a frog, but a toad. Uh, They're not the sorry, same. A toad, yes. it, yeah, it was the the cane toad, and of course yeah. uh, is so called because it loves to live on sugarcane, and uh-huh. in Hawaii. Uh, there was a, a significant population of these uh, these toads, and uh, they they are very good in going into the sugarcane fields and feeding on the beetles, which themselves like to devastate the sugarcane. So when um, uh, Australia began to grow sugarcane in 1930s, uh, there was no sugarcane be- be- uh, before that in Australia. So they began to grow it, and of course, uh, there was a problem with pests. So they uh, got some expert advice from Hawaii, and they decided that they would import some cane toads from Hawaii to try to control the beetle population in Australia. And they actually built a little love pond for them, and they imported uh, about 50 of these toads, and of course, they started to multiply very, very quickly. And these toads can grow very large. You know, they, they can, some of them 
can grow to the size of a of a a small watermelon. And uh, so they were uh, out in the sugarcane fields eating the the beetles, and pretty soon uh, the Australians discovered that uh, they were no longer very uh, effective uh, because they found other uh, foods to eat other than the uh, sugarcane beetles. And they were multiplying and they were out of the sugarcane fields and they, they were on the roads. And when a car ran over one of these guys, it made quite a, a, a puddle. Yeah. And there were accidents because of this. Wow. So that they came toad became a, a real scourge, and uh, not only were they not going out into the in, into the fields to you know seek out beetles to to eat, uh, they found that they didn't have to do that because Australia had something that Hawaii didn't have, which were streetlights. So the the toads just sat under the streetlights and waited for the insects that were grilled by being attracted to the lights to fall out of the sky and uh, ate them and got fat. And they became a huge problem in uh, in Australia. And um, now they are actually, Australians are being paid to do away with these toads. And uh, they are also skinning them and making them into wallets. But nevertheless, it's a it's a huge problem, and it just goes to show you that that uh, you have to really think through in terms of environmental consequences before you start bringing in any uh, novel creatures into uh, into a local uh, environment. It's a fascinating story, and there is actually a movie, and you can access that on the internet. It's called The Cane Toad, and you can see the the. Um, nature of these creatures <laughs> and you there's a one scene in there which you got to see because it shows a toad trying to copulate with a goldfish they also try to to do that with cats and with dogs so they really are are fascinating creatures so i would recommend watching this movie the cane toad so you're quite right this Thank was you for the, the uh, am the, i allowed yes. a question pardon Am, am I allowed a question? Yes, sure. Uh, it's a bit esoteric. Uh, okay. Is it, is it like uh, I heard it from Dan Ruskin? Uh, the uh, the virus, the COVID virus, uh, <clears throat> indirectly caused a slow in the rotation of the Earth. How so? Indirectly. Well, it's because when when they restricted air travel, and you know. There was no burning of fossil fuels, and and these say somehow they uh, strengthen the the clashes between air currents, and uh, you know air currents they also affect the uh, when you know with their action they they blow tangentially when they gr- uh, blow on the earth. It, it has it, it could slow down or accelerate the uh, the rotation. I would doubt that very much. I think it can certainly have an effect on weather. Uh-huh. Air traffic can have an effect on weather. That that I I can buy. Too far fetched. But not not the rotation of the Earth. I don't think so. But maybe some expert in physics can can. Uh, okay, thank you. Give us some more info on on that. Okay, interesting uh, question. Interesting question. Thank you. Okay, um, I've got a number of questions here. Uh, about the three-layer uh, um, 
washable masks with polypropylene. Uh, as a general rule these days, I mean, obviously the best mask to use is the N95 because uh, <clears throat> that leaves the least space between, you know, for the virus to, to enter into your nose and your mouth. Uh, but these have to be fitted properly, and also they are very uncomfortable to to wear. I don't think people can wear this for a very long time. The surgical masks work very well. You just have to make sure that you're putting them on properly. And, you know, they have that little metal piece that you can pinch around your nose. So make sure that you do that. And you can make it fit well. I think that they, they, the masks that are mostly cloth, even if they have a polypropylene layer, those are more difficult to, to fit. So the expert opinion, I think, these days is that you would, um, you know, if you want to be super safe, you would go with the N95 mask. The uh, next best is the blue uh, so-called surgical mask, but the cloth masks are not, uh, not that good. Uh, okay. Uh, Someone else, because of my comments uh, about uh, plastics, plastic bags. Well, that's a, the whole story, maybe for another time. I think that's also a bit short-sighted to just have a blanket uh, ban on plastic bags uh, because um, they're very useful for putting into garbage and people are going to start buying plastic bags if these are not available. Uh, then there's a comment here about whether or not we can use biodegradable plastic bags. Well, that's another crock because they generally don't biodegrade in landfills, uh, only under very special conditions. So text question, can I go for a booster if I just had COVID? Uh, the recommendation from public health is that uh, you wait two weeks, although frankly, I don't know why. I don't know what evidence they have for that. Uh, I don't, I don't know of any reason why one would not take a, a booster after having COVID, but uh, that's what the public, rec public health recommendation uh, is. <clears throat> now, here's something that you want to keep in mind. Men flex their muscles, peacocks spread their feathers, roosters, of course, crow, and cockroaches. What do they do? They release 2-methylthiazolidine, 4-ethyl-2-methoxyphenol. Uh, these chemicals uh, are the expression of maleness in cockroaches. And when they're released into the air, females pay attention. So do other males. They recognize the secretor as being dominant. And one might say that these compounds are a male cockroach's status symbol. I just thought that uh, you should know that. All right, we still have... Uh, my outstanding uh, questions. I want to know, Daniel Boone, legendary American frontiersman, settled in Kentucky. He was a fur trader, but he made his fortune trading a botanical product. What was that? And uh, I also want to know about Elena Ceausescu, wife of Nicolae Ceausescu, former dictator of Romania. Why was she nicknamed C-O-D-O-I, Sodoi or Kodoi? Not sure. Why was she nicknamed that? And I'm going to give you lots of chances here today. I'm going to add another question here. When the Soviets launched Sputnik 2 in 1957, it had a passenger. What was the name of that passenger? Okay, Soviets launched Sputnik 2 in 1957, had a passenger. What was the name of that 
passenger. I, th I think we have um, Kenneth and Mark on the line. Kenneth? Hello, Dr. Joe? Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to uh, inform you about something about the cane tones. The reason why they had the epidemic was they couldn't jump up to eat the uh, bugs. So they had a contest, and I filed for a copyright. And on the 16th of June that year, other scientists claimed that it was there. So I wrote back their professors, their staff at the universities, and they no longer said that they came up with the idea how to eradicate the cane toads. The reason why they what had was, the Sundance the Film idea? Festival was because... What was the idea? My idea was simple. When they gave out bicycles and that to eradicate 5,000 cane toads, it was impossible because they produced 200,000 live litters every year, and they're poisonous. So dogs and crocodiles would die. So I said, if they're going to a, go to a pond, you put two fences parallel to each other and encircle the pond because they want the water. But you make a step so they jumped over, like dump, jumping into a... How do you call those garbage containers? So they couldn't get out. But the little frogs were small enough that they can go through under the fence into the pond to um, repopulate because they needed the water to repopulate. But the cane toad couldn't go through the fence, the little gap underneath, but they jumped over and got trapped between the two fences. And the, um, the other scientists came up with ideas of dropping poisonous cane toads so the dogs would say, ew, I won't eat a big one, but it didn't work. And then they were dropping cat food. The guy says, crazy, by helicopter, cat food everywhere to try to catch him? So they had this contest throughout all Australia. So I wrote in and I copyrighted my idea. And then they said, yeah, you put two fences, they jump over, now they can't get out. But the frogs could reproduce, so they ate the things. But they're very toxic and so when they had some hurricanes and that, they were washed into the middle of Australia and down into Sydney. And that's the problem was the cane toads were too fat. They couldn't jump up and eat the beetles. And that's why they multiplied. Well, they're they fat, all right. And if you, you, so you must have seen the movie, the cane toad movie. No, I didn't see it. But when I heard the, the film came out, they hadn't found a solution for 60 years. So the government put out like we're lost. So they had a contest asking everybody in the world if they could come up with an idea. So I wrote in many times, like 30 ideas, and they said, you better copyright it. So I wrote them, I said, copyright it. And they said, yeah, we're going to copyright it. And then on the 16th of June of that year, they published it, that there was an idea to catch them by having them jump between the two fences because they were trying to put fences everywhere. They were in their people's yeah. backyard swimming pools. They were in their drinking water wells so i said you're gonna anyway they, <clears throat> there's a market now for for their skin in yeah, china I know, but the thing is their skins are toxic and they spit venom into your eyes and blind you look it up they're 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 very big and they were eating almost cats but they would yes, spit venom I, I like cobra no, i don't i don't think they spit web venom into your eye i don't think well look it up yeah, but what is true is that there was a case in Toronto where two guys went to an exotic pet store and bought a cane toad because they knew about the bufotenine that they secrete in these glands behind their eyes and that it's a hallucinogen. And they started to lick the toad and they ended up in hospital. That, I know, is a true story. 
Okay, anyway, thanks very much. Let's go to Mark on the line. Mark? Dr. Joe? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Oh, this is Jerry, actually, so I don't know. Oh, okay. That's okay. Jerry will do. Jerry will yeah. do. <laughs> I wanted to ask you to chow chow you a question, answer it. Uh, yes. She uh, mispronounced uh, the CO2. Instead of calling it CO2, she called it Kodoi. Yeah which was uh, yeah. apparently laughed at because she had a degree in chemistry as well. So, Or a claim to have. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, this is a, Elena Ceausescu is a very interesting story. I mean, of course, the Ceausescus were interesting, uh, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a horrible, horrible dictator. And, of course, they were overthrown in Romania in 1989. Yep. And both he and Elena were executed. Mm-hmm. But Elena, who claimed to have a PhD in chemistry, never had such a thing. Oh. Her, husband, her husband arranged that she should have this from a university. Oh. She had no knowledge in chemistry, but nevertheless, she authored many scientific papers, which were oh. ghostwritten, and her name was put on it. Uh. And now there's a big movement in Romania to basically remove her name from any kind of scientific publication because she had absolutely nothing to to do with it. She was just created to be a researcher by by her husband. And uh, she she was absolutely ignorant of science. And uh, that was demonstrated that that carbon dioxide, she (laughs) mispronounced, you know, a simple chemical like that, she mispronounced. And that's why she got the nickname of uh, of Kodoi, or whatever uh, you pronounce (laughs) it. That's a great story. Oh, it's a it's yeah, it's a it's very interesting story, because there's even a textbook. Uh, there's a textbook on polymer science that she supposedly wrote. Oh boy! And you know, this is someone who knew nothing whatsoever, and uh, she became a scientist purely through force, because of course her husband had all the uh, the the power. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, Romania under Ceausescu was uh, a pretty, pretty uh, nasty place. Not a fun place. Not a fun place. They met a just okay. end, though. Pardon? I said they met a just end. <laughs> yes, they. Yeah, so I, I, I think good they trial. Did meet a just end. Yeah, they they re- they really did. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that. And uh, as I always do, I will replace that question with uh, with another one. Which of the following names is out of place? Okay, so listen to the following names. Which is out of place? Andre Marie Ampere, Luigi Galvani, George Simon Ohm, Dieter Klaus Volt, and Michael Faraday. One of these is out of place. I'll repeat Andre Marie Ampere, Luigi Galvani, George Simon Ohm, Dieter Klaus Volt and Michael Faraday. One of these is out of place. Which one is uh, is that? Um, okay, uh, questions also, lots of questions that I, I see texted uh, in here. Uh, we do have an answer to the Daniel Boone question. Very good. Uh, and the answer is ginseng. Yes, believe it or not, Daniel Boone was a trader in American ginseng, which became an extremely, extremely big uh, business in the late 1700s. 
where was the American ginseng exported to? Believe it or not, it was exported to China. I had a comment uh, uh, texted uh, someone saying that uh, the volume that you're listening to is not not good enough and that I should be speaking more into the mic. I, I can tell you that I cannot be any closer to the mic than I am. So I'm not sure what that's about. If if uh, if this is true, if there are others out there who think that the volume is too low, text us 514-800 because I'd, I'd like to know if there really is something going on. Um, anyway, I think Mark had a question. Mark? Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hello, hi. Uh, I have a question. You were talking about masks before. Now, there was a mask given by the uh, made in Vietnam uh, by the city of Koh Tsing Luc that has three filters, uh, an anti-droplet outer layer, a mini mid-layer dual filter, and an inner layer, which is sweat-absorbent and antimicrobial. Can this be as good as the N95? It's probably not as good as the N95. The, you see, the, the thing with the N95 is that it fits very snugly around the face. Uh-huh. I understand. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question of the fit. Because right. the, the masks, the, all the masks are actually very good at filtering. So it's just a question of whether or not there's enough room around the sides, you know, to uh, let the uh, virus get in. Yes, I understand. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, You know, there have been a lot of questions uh, I answered this past week about the rapid tests. Because people are beginning to use them. And, of course, there were lineups in front of pharmacies to, to get them. So I wrote what I think is a comprehensive article. And um, in terms of my understanding of the rapid tests and how you should use them and when they work, when they're reliable, etc. And uh, it's on our website if you want to check it out. So you just go to mcgill.ca slash OSS. So this is M-C-G-I-L-L dot C-A slash OSS. And uh, I hope that I have explained it in enough detail and in a comprehensible fashion because it is very important to know when these tests should be used, what they mean. Unfortunately, the Omicron has uh, thrown a bit of a wrench into the works because it replicates so quickly in the bronchial tubes that uh, you can have a negative test one day and uh, by the next day, uh, you would have a positive test, but you may not take one the next day. Or you can have a negative test just before going to a gathering or to a party, assume that everything is okay. Uh, But you may have uh, contacted someone the day before who was transmitting the Omicron. So that the time that you tested, there was not yet enough replicated virus to give you a positive test, but three or four hours later, there might be. This is a problem with Omicron. It it replicates so, uh, so quickly. So anyway, it, it, there's a lot of detail here, which you know it's virtually impossible to go into on the radio. But if you go to our website, mcgillca slash OSS, you'll get my take on, on, the, uh, on the tests. And uh, they can be very useful uh, if you just uh, do it properly. And of course, uh, aside from knowing when to do the test, you also have to... Uh, know exactly how to take the sample. And uh, 
a lot of people may be making a mistake with uh, with that. All right, well, let me get back to the ginseng for a moment because it's a very interesting story. and takes us back to 1702 when a French Jesuit priest, Father Jartou, uh, happened to be in, in Manchuria, which was, of course, a province of China. And he noted that the Chinese were using a lot of ginseng and they were using it for medicinal purposes, all kinds of medicinal purposes, whether it was headaches or convulsions or or cramps. It seemed to be good for everything. And uh, he described uh, this wonder plant uh, to another Jesuit priest, Father Lafitao, who was working in Canada at that time. He wrote him a letter, and uh, the uh, Father Lafitao was working with the, the natives, And uh, he also had heard from these natives about uh, a plant that they were using for medicinal purposes. And he began to investigate it, and it turned out to be the same plant, uh, or at least another version, a very similar plant, an American version of, of, of ginseng. And what was fascinating here is that the symptoms and the conditions for which the natives were using the American ginseng paralleled the uses in China. So here were two populations that had no contact with each other, but they had come to the same conclusion about a very similar uh, plant. Uh, And that, of course, was ginseng. And uh, he discovered that ginseng grew in Canada, very much like it grew in Manchuria. And uh, he was, uh, after searching, you know, through the forest, he was uh, rewarded by finding it. And French fur traders very quickly realized that there were large profits to be made selling American ginseng to the Chinese. And they were making a lot of money uh, on this. And um, this is when Daniel Boone came into the picture. He was a a pioneer, a frontiersman, and exploring uh, Kentucky. And he basically uh, was involved in the fur trade. uh, And, you know, they were trapping all kinds of animals, uh, especially beavers. But then he discovered this demand for ginseng in Europe and in in Asia. And uh, he made a fortune trading uh, ginseng, which is, you know, a story that uh, I think uh, certainly I didn't know, and and I would suspect most people uh, did not know this. And then there was a, a very interesting corollary to the story. Uh, he accumulated a lot of ginseng, and he was going to sell this uh, to a trader in Philadelphia, but the boat carrying it overturned in the Ohio River, and he lost the whole shipment. And he persisted. Next year, he collected some more. He had better luck. And uh, the Boone family fortune was made off of uh, of ginseng. Now, many stories about Daniel Boone, of course, are uh, sort of myth. But this one seems to be uh, true. And uh, I don't know if uh, the TV series, I mean, I remember watching many, many years ago, the TV st- uh, series, uh, I think it starred, Fess Parker, who also, of course, played uh, Davy Crockett. I don't know if they ever made any connection to to ginseng, but uh, this uh, is is very interesting that North America was supplying Asia with ginseng in the late 1700s and the early uh, 1800s. Uh, I think a fascinating story. And uh, 
ginseng still grows in, in North America, many regions, but it is a protected plant. You can't just go out and harvest it. There are seasons when you can. And there's even a, there's a forest in Kentucky uh, named after Daniel Boone, the Daniel Boone Forest, where apparently you can't pick ginseng, but only at certain times of, uh, uh, of the year. Uh, so there, you know, something about the Daniel Boone uh, story um, about uh, poppies and what can happen if you overdo their intake. And uh, I'll tell you a story about a baker, 26-year-old man who was admitted to hospital because he experienced a seizure, which was followed by terrifying hallucinations. And the problem soon resolved. And uh, doctors could find at first no explanation until the man's business partner revealed that he had been ordering 25 kilogram bags of poppy seed every week, but they only needed three kilograms of poppy seeds for their baking. So the doctors then tested the baker's blood, which had been stored since the day of his seizure, and they found high levels of morphine. Now, as I've talked about before, poppy seeds do contain morphine, which, of course, is a powerful narcotic. And the baker was apparently drinking up to two liters of poppy tea a day made from four kilograms of seeds because he had read on the Internet how wonderful this was. And uh, it was protective uh, against disease. It solved pain problems and also put you in a happy mood. And uh, no wonder he experienced these terrible consequences. Uh, the man was then admitted into an addiction treatment program where he was given a slow-release form of morphine until he could be weaned off of uh, the drug. And sometimes uh, truth is stranger than fiction. So we have run out of time once more. And uh, I hope we've been informative and somewhat entertaining here today. Uh, and. Uh, I guess this is it for 2021. We're going to say goodbye to it. And by the time that I see you again next Sunday, we will have welcomed 2022 and have said goodbye to 2021, which was not a particularly good year. So until we meet again in the new year, I want to take this opportunity to wish you a happy new year next Saturday and uh, hope that all of the chemistry in your life will come out better in 2022 than it did in 2021. See you next Sunday.